I have a saying, which is let science guide you, but never lead you. Because whatever you want to believe will be supported by science. You'll always find science to support whatever it is, like whatever position that you want to hold. Right? And we got to get to a point where we build a model of understanding that allows us to navigate this gray area because it's not black and white. So let's, let's come at it from a slightly different energy now. Let's look at where the confusion is, right? The real confusion is that we like to think that this topic is black and white. You got the people that say round back lifting will increase the chances of you getting a back injury, especially under load, right? Then you've got the people that go, no, I support round back lifting. If you look at all the meta-analysis out there that compare round back versus neutral back lifting, there is no clear agreement between any of the biomechanists that have studied this on which one is actually safer than the other. Right? That's, that's the problem. So now we have like this, this sort of stalemate. Because now if you listen to the debates, people are just arguing and refusing research with other research. One person will go, yes, but when you flex the back, Right, you'll get an increase in interstitial pressure and a likelihood of like a posterior disc prolapse, whatever. And then someone else will go, yeah, but if you look at these biomechanical models, right, they've shown that interdiscal pressure actually increased with a neutral back posture in these studies. So you can't say, this is how I make my case because this study over here shows you exactly the same thing, but for the opposite scenario that you're predicting, you're, you're positioning. So we just keep banging our head against the wall. And this is why I, I lose interest in academic debate. So let science guide you, but never lead you. Otherwise, you'll be like this all the fucking time, bouncing around. Whatever science is in vogue, right? you'll be going, okay, so this is how it is now. And then just wait for a year or two, and that will be discredited. And now this will be in vogue. And you're like, okay, I'm over here now. And you just, it's like you're just sitting there waiting for the people in the white lab coats to throw the fucking stick and you run over and you fetch it, right? And then they throw it that way and you fucking run over like a little dog and you fetch it that way. So this is about you guys learning how to be leaders. It's about having a model of understanding that holds true, that gives you a sense of an understanding to navigate this gray area, despite all the conflicting information and the noise going on around you. So how do we, how do, we do that? All right. Well, the first thing I always do is I want to understand the body. Now, you've heard me come out with many sayings in the past, and another one of them is, in order to interpret what is wrong, we must first understand what is right. All right. Hands up if you heard me say that before. Yeah, so before I wanted to understand all the things that can go wrong, I asked myself, well, what's normal? And the first thing you realize is there's no fucking normal. All right. But there are general laws that govern what is normal in each individual. There's just variations of that law in terms of how it expresses in people. So one of the, the, the laws right, is the law of biological systems. Right? We are biological systems. Right? We are about stress, recovery, adaptation. That, that is a biological law. We are a system of systems and we are adapting to stress and either becoming stronger or becoming weaker in response to stress. Now, are you too familiar with that law? Yeah. So now we're looking at how well a biological system can deal with stress. And we know the basic principle that holds true for everyone 
is that if stress exceeds your capacity to recover, then we start to have a negative adaptation versus a positive adaptation. And a negative adaptation means things get weaker and eventually weaknesses break. So that can be true for round back lifting or straight back lifting. Couldn't it? Yeah. All right. But we know if stress is enough to stimulate a re an adaptive response and we have enough time to recover from that stress, then the adaptation we get is positive and things get stronger. Could that not also be the case for round back or straight back lifting? Yeah. Now, I want you to write down two words. One is Wolf's Law and the other one is Davis's Law. So these are just terms that just clarify or align with this biological law I've just said. So Wolf's Law is in conversation around bone. Right? A bone is a biological system, which means it relates to stress recovery adaptation. So bone, according to Wolf's Law, will adapt to the stresses that pass through that bone. It will get thicker and stronger, or it will get weaker and more fragile, depending upon the type of stress and the loading and recovery. So we know that bone in the body is a biological system. Right? We know that when there's compression in a bone, we get an increase in what's called the piezoelectric effect, right? Which means we get a lot of osteoblasts flooding into the area and building and remodeling bone. And when there's a, a part of the bone that's experiencing a negative pressure, right, we get osteoclasts going in and breaking down bone. So bone is a dynamic system that's always <laughs> remodeling itself based on the forces that are passing through it. So if you look at the spines of weightlifters, right, you will see a lot of adaptation in that spine in response to the law of progressive overload. So bone gets stronger. The cortical bone gets thicker. The trabecular bone, which is if you take like a, a tube of like you know, toilet roll, right, and you shove a sponge in there, right? Think of that as being like the vertebral body. So the actual... Cardboard tube is the cortical bone, and the sponge in the middle is the trabecular bone. It looks a bit like, you know, honeycomb inside. Both will adapt to loading and get thicker and stronger. So you can get an x ray and you can look at two spines and you go, that's obviously someone that fucking lifts a lot of weight because I can see the adaptation in the bone. All right, that's Wolf's law. We have Davis's law, which refers more to like the muscles. Right? Muscles will adapt to the loading that passes through it. We also know that the inert structures, like the disc, the ligaments, the capsules, all those inert structures adapt to loading as well. They get thicker and stronger. In fact, ligaments will hypertrophy like muscle under load. It's a biological system. So what this means is that the body always wants to adapt to stress. The body is designed to adapt and get stronger as a result of stress to minimize the risk of injury. Because an injury is a direct threat to the being. Hands up if, you, if this is making sense so far. 
right? So that's a basic law. So now when we think about lifting and we think about neutral versus round back, okay? <laughs> why would anybody? So let's think about it even before we had biomechanics and people were breaking down the mechanics of lifting. And let's forget about it before science and stuff like that, where they started talking about moment arms and, and all this sort of stuff. Why is it that a lot of the strong men of yesteryear who just wanted to get strong without any real guidance, there wasn't like get on the internet, pick up magazines, look at biomechanical models for lifting and lever arms and stuff. Why did a lot of them figure out just through lifting that it was mechanically more efficient to deadlift with more of a round back posture, right? Well, this is exactly what you guys were sort of alluding to. It decreases the lever arm, right? If you have a straight back and you look at the lever arm from the hip to the shoulder, it's quite long. And we know the consequence of lifting with a large lever arm, right? If you round the back, you bring pretty much the shoulders closer to the hip because you now round like that versus being straight like that. And it decreases the lever arm. So mechanically, it was more efficient. And this is why the strongmen learned to do that. But the question is, we always want to ask, where were they making up the round back lifting position? Was it in their lumbar or was it in their thoracic or was it in both? Now, there's always going to be outliers, right? If you look at most of the power lifters, if you look at the research in terms of where they make up that flexion, right? They predominantly make it up in thoracic flexion. This is why they have massive thoracic extensors. They tend to keep quite a relatively neutral lumbar curve, but there's a lot of thoracic flexion and a lot of scapular protraction. Why? To increase the mechanical advantage. If we round the thoracic, we decrease the lever arm. If we protract the scapula, we actually lengthen the arms, which means they don't have to get their hips as low to get their hands to the bar. So now they've figured out that having a lot of thoracic flexion with a lot of scapular protraction to lengthen the arms, they can now pull with a short lever arm and a relatively high hip position. And that is very favorable to lifting a shitload of weight up off the ground. Now, again, there's always going to be outliers. Like, again, someone made reference to Bob Peoples, and he was a bit of a, a, bit of a freak. So he was back, I think it was like 1949. He lifted something like 725 pounds off the floor, right? which is impressive for back then because he only weighed about like 180 pounds. So it was an impressive lift. right? But what was really crazy about Bob Peoples is that he did everything opposite to what we talk about. He would stand over the bar he would breathe out, like fully exhale and round out his whole back, lumbar and, and thoracic and pull from that position. And he found that that was the strongest way for him to pull without having all this intra-abdominal pressure that he felt was going to increase the chances of him hurting his back. And if you ever try that, you can feel it. I've done it myself with Jefferson's, right? I fully exhale as I'm doing the Jefferson and decrease intra-abdominal pressure without bracing and stuff. And there's, some, there's a different feel to it. And it feels really easy. It feels quite nice. All right. So I've experimented with these things just to get a feel for it. So there's, there's always going to be outliers, right? But just take note, most of the, this round back lifting that we talk about is predominantly with thoracic flexion, not so much the lumbar. Now, 
here's another important point. A lot of people will say you can't actually lift with a neutral curve, right? If you actually measure right, the curvature of the spine, it's impossible even under light loads right, to hold a neutral curve. There's always going to be a degree of flexion. And that's another thing that will come up. Now, when we look at these power lifters again, that look like they're doing a full round back lift, like I said, it's predominantly made up in the thoracic. We, we know that. And yes, there's going to be flexion in the lumbar spine. But here's the thing. If you look at the research by Stuart McGill, right? Now, he did a lot of studying around, you know, lifting with neutral curve. And if you know, he's a big advocate for do not do round back lifting. Right. That's sort of his baby. It's like, no, no, it's dangerous. You know, all his his modeling show that you increase the chance of a disc injury and stuff like that. So he's looking more at proving why neutral back is a safe to lifting posture. Now, if you look at there's a study I've mentioned before where he was looking at powerlifters and the powerlifters were lifting a certain load. Um, I can't remember the rig they had set up. I think it was like pulling something that didn't really move off the floor or something like that, if I remember correctly but he had it all hooked up and they're using video fluoroscopy to measure what was happening in the lumbar spine. And one of the power lifters during the lift actually hurt his lower back and they captured that in video fluoroscopy. Now, even though this power lifter had massive lumbar erectors of like steel cables running down his back during a phase of the lift, he was in a certain amount of you know, degrees of flexion, but he wasn't at end range flexion. But at this particular point, the multifidus crossing the L2 spinal motion segment lost fine motor control and allowed that segment to tip into that extra flexion, which took him into enraged flexion, and he traumatized the spinal motion segment and hurt his back. So that led to a bit of an understanding that flexion under load isn't necessarily bad, but as you approximate enraged flexion under load, the risk does go up. And this is why I teach you the concept of benefit to risk. Right? There's nothing wrong with round back lifting, but we need to be aware that potentially as you approach in range flexion, the risk can go up. But is that even true to say? Maybe, maybe not. Why? Because if we go back to Wolf's law and Davis's law, right? If somebody never exposes their lower back to full in range flexion under load, were they going to develop weaknesses towards in range? Just like if we don't expose the knee to terminal knee flexion, we're going to develop weaknesses in the knee. And when we look at what really is health and longevity in the body, it's having strength through a full range of motion in all the joints. Most people, I would speculate, who hurt their back when they do round back lifting are people that have very low resilience to flexion under load because they never really go into flexion under load. And when they do, we know that as you go into flexion under load, you start to shift the force now more into the inert structures like the ligaments and stuff around the joints. And they can be very weak. There's been no time to adapt because there's been no progressive overload. So it wouldn't take much to exceed their minimal or their maximal tissue tolerance. You see how this is starting to make sense when you start applying certain laws to how the body works. So for me personally, I came from an understanding that round back lifting was a no-no. It was taboo, right? Just like terminal knee flexion under load was a taboo. What was the outcome of that? The outcome is that I babied my back. The outcome is that 
I developed a very weak lower back and a very vulnerable lower back because I had no real tissue tolerance to flexion under load because I never loaded myself in flexion. I avoided it all the time. Now, I used to give people minimal advice. Like, so back in the day, it was if it was something that you could pick up 20 times comfortably, then round your back to lift it. Like, if you're going to be picking up your shoes or your clothes off the floor in the morning, then round your back to pick it up. Don't have a neutral back all the time. And I would live, I would live by that. But when it came to loading, no. So what was happening is that when I used to do heavy lifting, the moment I got dragged out of neutral under low, because I was, you know, going heavy, trying to push the envelope a little bit, I was getting pushed into a range of motion where my maximal tissue tolerance was fucking nothing. And now all of a sudden, these weakened tissues that have never been loaded are getting to meet quite a heavy load on the bar. And they're going to go, well, don't ask us to fucking do anything. And I would tweak my back. So one of the things I had to do personally was increase my flexion resilience. And that's why I tell you now, I'm doing a lot of Jeffersons. And do you know what? I was so fucking scared when I started doing Jeffersons because it went against my programming. And I remember the first time I did it, I was only doing it with seven kilo dumbbells. And I was worried because I've never done this before and I'm going into flexion under load and, and all these stories were playing through my mind. Now I told you I can do it comfortably with like a, a 20 kilo weight vest on and two, two 20 kilo dumbbells and I can just bang them out. But in the back of my mind, there's still that little concern. It's the only lift that I do that I think about an injury before I do it. No other lift. When I go to do dips, I don't fucking think about an injury, the potential to hurt my, like I just go, fuck, let's go here, let's do this. But Jefferson's, there's always in the back of my mind before I do it, we will better be careful with this. That's the programming that I've got. Yeah. But if we take that off the table, what's been the outcome? My lower back has got way fucking stronger. And I actually can't remember the last time I had a little twinge or a tweak when I was doing some heavy lifting and squatting and things like that. It's made my back a lot stronger. So what is the outcome of all this? It's about understanding biological laws. If we go back one step, because I was going to add something, which I didn't, but when we're looking at the powerlifters that we're lifting with the round back posture, right? even though it looks like they're in lumbar flexion, and they are, there's some lumbar flexion there, right? they're still quite a few degrees away from end range flexion. And they have conditioned that so well through progressive overload that Wolf's Law and Davis Laws has fully kicked in. So they're strong structurally in that position. It's adapted to being loaded. And secondly, even if they miss the lift, they're so good at staying tight under load and holding position that even if they miss the lift, they don't get dragged into any more flexion. Mm -hmm. They just miss the lift. And that's what makes it so powerful for them because they've given themselves the opportunity to adapt to that pulling position, which mechanically has more advantage, more advantage to pulling than straight back for many people. And that's why they can pull superhuman loads off the floor. All right. So how do we sum all this up? We have to have sort of like a, a bit of a philosophy that we want to hold on to. So I personally, when I look at all the research out there, all right, it's very conflicting. So how do I choose to navigate the gray area? 
I understand the body is a biological system. I understand the laws that govern the biological system. If I've got someone coming in who is really fucking weak, like as in you can just see them like at a musculoskeletal level, they're just weak, right? Then we have to respect the biological laws and apply very slowly the law of progressive overload, realizing that the maximal tissue tolerance is going to be very low, right? There's not a lot of margin for error. Now, that just means that I would be thinking about building strength with neutral back, but I'd also be improving flexion resilience through things like 45 degree back extensions with the ASIS on the pad first to introduce longitudinal decompressive loads through the posterior ligamentous system where we're going into full flexion. And then from there, I would then look at advancing them to maybe things like Jefferson's under light loads. And now we're, we're, we're training the two worlds together. And now we've got someone who's going to be strong, both in neutral and has good flexion resilience. Now, if they want to get into powerlifting, it might be advantageous to move them into more round back lifting and teach them that technique and apply the law of progressive overload over time to that technique so they get super strong, right, musculoskeletally in that pulling position, and that's fine. But for the average person, right, I like to use more neutral lifting, but increasing their flexion tolerance. The same thing. It's like I'll get people doing heavy squatting where there's the knee may go up to the toe, but when I really want to go knees over toe, I don't ever look at that as being like a max effort lift. I can still go heavy with knees over toe, but it's not something that we'd program for a max effort lift to go up to like a heavy single or something like that. I like to just dial it back a little bit and use more of a knee progression up to the toe where the knee's a lot more stable and there's more scope for error in that range of motion there. Because you remember, when you go to the extremes, more you are for many people approaching more the risk side of the lift versus the benefit. And a lot of people don't need to do that. So that's how I navigate this minefield. And it served me well. And hopefully it will serve you guys well. And it gives you a way to make sense of all the fucking nonsense out there. All right. So how did you guys experience me giving a little bit of a summary on that? What did I do that was missing in the debate? You tied everything together. Yeah, I tied everything together. But more importantly, not just I tied it together, I added it, as Nick said, to what is our philosophy and understanding in FMA. So that alone made things just sound more plausible. So rather than just throwing out a few references here and there, I tied it into a model of understanding that helped make sense of all the, the nonsense out there to the point like I'm watching you guys and there's a lot of this. Oh yeah, yeah, nods, yeah. Yeah, makes sense, that makes sense. All right, but that just, that just comes with practice. And for you, it's, it's like never put down what you know to pick up something different. And I'm always saying this to students, like always hold on to what you know, but add to it. Don't ever just put it down and replace it with something else. I had this experience with one of our presenters back in the day, and he would follow science. It was all about what was the science saying? 
And we had a conversation once about nutrition. And he came up to me, so we got on a Zoom call and he just goes, oh, fuck, he goes, I'm done. And I go, what? He goes, I'm just so fucking confused about nutrition. Now they're saying this, you know, and before it was this, he goes, I, I, fuck, I don't know what to tell people anymore. And I just sort of laughed and he goes, why do you not get frustrated by this? And I went, because I don't follow the science, right? I have a model of understanding that holds true and I navigate life through that understanding. And I listen to what science has to say and I might pick up and run with some of it. I might just push others to the side, but it never makes me put down the fundamental principles that I know to be true. And for me, nutrition, right? The fundamental principles, you know, are what I share with you around Western A price and stuff like that, around real food and things like this, right? That always holds fucking true. So it's the same thing with the body, with this biological system. It holds true. So listen to what people are arguing and just sit there and go, how do I discern truth? Because debates are nothing more than your ability to discern truth. And just listen and go, how well does that marry up with what I know to be true in the body? What makes sense based on my model of understanding, which is based on what we know to be true? And you can see that I was able to make sense of both arguments based on that biological law. And that's why both can be true. It just depends upon how well we manage that in relationship to benefit to risk, which is very individual, because that's going to be related to individuals' maximal tissue tolerance. And at the end of the day, some people are so fucking piss poor weak that, yeah, they can just bend over to pick up a pencil and they can fucking hurt their backs. That's how fragile some people are because they don't use their bodies and the bodies adapt to what we use our bodies for. And if you use your body to be fucking weak, then you will have a weak body. All right. So I'm going to stop recording now.